Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. In today's deep dive, we're going to the cusp of the millennium, when a not entirely straightforward French-trained colt made up for his idiosyncrasies with a raft of fabulous performances. Indeed, in researching this book and podcast, it has been striking to me how many of the great horses were actually slightly mad. Be it the pig-headedness of Sun Chariot or the sheer cussedness of Native Dancer, it shows that you don't have to be level-headed to be a champion. Indeed, perhaps many excelled because of their odd behaviours. Monjou was another who had to do things his way, and only his way, before he deigned to deliver. But deliver he did, usually in truly sumptuous style. By the end of his career, everyone wanted to claim Monjou as one of their own. Born in Ireland, bred by a Franco-Brit, but trained in France by another Englishman, he was a proper European. As a son of all-conquering sire Sadler's Wells, he was always going to be the apple of someone's eye, and initially it was that of Sir James Goldsmith, tycoon, financier and occasional politician, who bred the horse and named him after his stunning chateau in the Burgundy region of France. Yet, after Goldsmith's death when Monjou was a yearling, the colt was passed to Goldsmith's ex-partner, Laure Boulet de la Meurthe, who decided to keep the horse trained in France by expat Englishman John Hammond. The latter knew what it took to train a champion, having conditioned Suave Dancer to arc glory in 1991, and he soon saw something equally impressive in his new charge. He also saw a streak of bizarre, diva-like behaviour in the colt, which would need every ounce of the trainer's gentle handling to contain. Monge's two races as a juvenile were seemingly low-key, albeit impressive. An easy debut victory over a mile at Chantilly, in the Prix de la Maniguette, was soon followed by a cosy victory, in the Prix Isonomie at Deauville. But it was only after the horse he conquered there, Spadoon, mopped up the Group 1 Criterium de Saint-Cloud a fortnight later, that people started paying more attention to Monjou. Amongst them was the hugely powerful Coolmore outfit from Ireland, led by John Magnier, who made an offer that Madame Boulet de la Meurthe couldn't refuse. And thereafter, the colt would run in the colours of Magnier's business partner, Michael Tabor. There were thus very high hopes for Monjou's three-year-old campaign, and he ultimately somehow exceeded them. Ridden initially by American veteran Cash Asmussen, he started in the ten-and-a-half furlong Prix Greffule. Asmussen rode him in his favourite catbird seat, blasting past the Aga Khan's highly rated Senderwar in the last hundred metres. Although it was further than Senderwar's ideal, the fact that he then proceeded to mop up most of Europe's top mile races that year, yet was clearly second best here, showed that Monjou was indeed a class act. The Prix Lupin, Monge's main prep race for the French derby was, however, something of a farce. 
they crawled through the early stages before a frustrated Monjou started twisting his head stubbornly to the side and hanging badly, failing to catch up in time with leader Gracioso. Punters who had made him ten to one on were bemused, but hoped for better in the Prix du Jockey Club, the French derby, itself. They weren't disappointed. Settled in the rear, Monjou unleashed a pulverizing turn of foot in the straight to take the classic by four lengths without being tested by the other top-draw colts. The Irish owners then decided to bring him over, later in the month, for their home equivalent. Despite another class field, it was clear that Asmussen was just itching to unleash his colt for several furlongs. When he finally pressed the button, the response was electric, and Monjou was suddenly five lengths up. Head turned this time to the crowd on the left, as though seeking their approval. The following day's Irish Times summed it up best. Only good horses win classics, but yesterday's Budweiser Irish Derby had a feeling of coronation about it as Monjou completed the French and Irish Derby double with an overpowering display of dominance. And the clear impression that will reverberate around Europe, it continued, is that he can only get better. Asmussen was adamant afterwards that the mighty colt had five kilos in hand, and there were only nods from witnesses. Hammond called the performance frightening, and confirmed that the Ark was the autumn target. For the rest of his career, Monge would then be ridden by Irish great Michael Kinnan, who was essentially Coolmore's retained rider at the time. His first ride almost went against the script in the traditional Ark warm-up for three-year-old colts, the Prignel. Monjou was having one of his naughty days and not responding to urges. When he finally decided to, he snuck up and won by a head. No one was too put out, but more discouraging was the ground for the Ark itself. Little short of a quagmire after days of rain, it was disastrous for Hammond's colt, whose unparalleled turn of foot was infinitely more effective on good or firm ground than in the mud. In a race featuring top horses from France, England, Ireland, Japan and even Norway, Kinan would have to keep him handier than usual. In fact, the rider of the day wasn't European, but Masayoshi Ebina from Japan. Partnering El Condor Passa, the highest international rated Japanese runner ever to that point, he took the lead early and deceptively moved gradually clear round the final long turn his colt floating on the heavy ground. By the home straight, the condor seemed to have flown. No one got near him, except for Monjou. Kinan asked his mount to unleash everything he had in the last two furlongs, and remorselessly, despite the appalling conditions, he ground down the five lengths to his Japanese opponent, passing the finishing post half a length in front. The rest were nowhere. It had been an outstanding effort, although he broke Japanese hearts. Fortunately, though, Monge was to stay in training as a four-year-old, with a second arc his long-term target. Returning to Ireland to kick off his season, he cruised to victory in the 10-furlong Tattersall's Gold Cup in what looked like little more than an exercise canter against a proper Group 1 field. Back in France, he took in the Grand Prix de Saint-Cloud, outclassing his rivals by five lengths. 
It seemed as though the two biggest fears for connections, would he be as good and would he learn to behave, were allayed. In fact, they were only half right. Monjou next made his trip to the UK, where the midsummer centrepiece of the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth stakes at Ascot would be his target. It was now that he decided to play the pig-headed diva. As the other horses walked calmly into the paddock beforehand, there was one horse missing, the big favourite. Hammond, who was convinced that Monjou had never been in better form, later reminisced, it was soon obvious that Monjou had decided, as had become his inclination, that he had no intention of going into the paddock itself. No amount of pushing, pulling, or being offered a lead by another horse was working. Monjou wasn't getting fractious. Far from it. He was playing games and just wanted a particular thing to happen, and it was up to his charges to work out what that was. Just as Hammond was about to lose his own mind, it clicked. Monjou wanted Hammond's head lad, Didier Follop, and only Didier Follop, to ride him into the parade ring. Left with no other option, Hammond hoisted on Fulop, suit, tie, brogues and all, onto Monge's back, and suddenly the colt acquiesced and walked happily into the parade ring as though it was the most normal thing in the world. To his credit, Monge paid back his handlers a few minutes later with one of the most sumptuous displays of class ever witnessed on a British track. Against another field oozing with quality, Kinan didn't have to move a muscle as Monjou strode past the others with almost contemptuous ease. Only Nijinsky's 1970 performance was even remotely comparable in the history of this championship race. His behaviour that day summed up Hammond's nickname for him, the eccentric genius, perfectly. Yet Monjou was never quite the same animal again. He won his arc warm-up, the Prix Foy, easily enough, but in his last three performances, the Arc, the Champion Stakes and the Breeders' Cup Turf, it was clear that his heart wasn't really in it, finishing fourth, second and seventh to horses whom he would likely have beaten well in the past. His oddness was beginning to get the better of him, and it was time for stud. There, Monjou was every bit as much a stunning success as on the course, siring champions around the globe including no less than four Epsom Derby winners, before his premature death at the age of 16 from sepsis. He had a few issues, Kinan once said euphemistically, by which he actually meant that Monjou was as mad as a box of frogs. Indeed, but he was also a wonderful champion who helped us see in the millennium with a rare talent. To find out more about Monjou and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening. <laughs>